The Open Conspiracy, Blueprints for a World Revolution, by H.G. Wells, read by Graham Dunlop, audio editing by Darren Grimes. Chapter 1, Necessity of Religion to Human Life. Few people, if any, are always sustained by unselfish or religious motives, and few or none are altogether beyond their influence. The daily lives of the great majority of human beings are frankly irreligious. They seem to differ only in their scope, variety, and intelligence from the lives of animals. They are determined by instinctive impulses, individual desires, and personal ends. They pass from one satisfaction or disappointment to another. They are attracted and deflected by casual encounters. They forget more or less completely, and they resume. Nevertheless, the conduct of most lives is restricted and defined by the prevalent conceptions of what is honorable and becoming, and right and wrong. Although the lives of the great run of people are neither moral essentially nor essentially religious, they respect current moral and religious forms and maxims, just as they conform to current usages and beaten tracks. It is the line of least resistance for them, and that suffices. Communities have been held together in the past and are still held together by laws and moral codes systematized upon religious ideas, and this although few people have more than a superficial apprehension of such ideas. Religion in its completeness has always been the peculiarity of a minority. It has shaped and innervated communities, but never pervaded them throughout. But its presence seems to have been necessary for collective life. Without it, morality was baseless and law unjustifiable. The intermittent disposition of most human beings towards some sort of righteousness beyond self-seeking has been upheld, as some sprawling, weak-jointed climbing plant may be upheld on a trellis. By that steadfast minority of sincere and devoted persons, it is these latter who have preserved disinterested standards, and who still preserve them who have been and who continue to be the salt of the earth. Religious ideas in the past have derived from the most diverse emotional and intellectual origins in the integrating mind of man. Speculative explanations, metaphors hardened by usage into quasi-factual statements, fantasies arising out of germinating and suppressed impulses, false analogies, parables begotten and lit by flashes of spiritual insight, Traditions misconceived and distorted, dogmatic excesses in explicitness evoked by the irritation of contradictory criticism, the odd compromises of theological diplomatists, the craving for supernatural sanctions and vindications and the nightmare creations of fear, that haunting shadow of all conscious life, have mingled inextricably in every religious fabric. But the survival value of a religion to a community, has lain always in the practical assistance it afforded in the subordination of self and the achievement of cooperative loyalists not otherwise obtainable. No community seems ever to have been held together in wholesome and vigorous collective life by enlightened self-interest alone. Enlightened self-interest in exceptional cases and under slight or moderate stresses may produce enough simulated disinterestedness to be practically undistinguishable from public virtue. 
and the great mass of lives in every community is no doubt kept at this or that moral level. And in this or that form of behavior, according to the quality and intensity of the beliefs that hold that community together, with little or no cooperating force in the lives themselves. But somewhere, and effectively in that community, the sustaining beliefs of the community must be passionately and sincerely held and maintained. A community where binding beliefs have decayed altogether is alike a building whose mortar has been changed to sand. It may stand for a time, but it stands precariously. Now, the communities in which we are living today, there has been a far-reaching weakening and change in religious beliefs. This has been due to an enormous growth of knowledge, to an enhanced vigor of criticism, to a relative enfeeblement of government and authority which released unprecedented freedoms of speech and permitted the crystallization of doubts into coherent and militant denials. At the same time, there have been developments of the mechanical conditions of life that have enlarged the scale of possible human operations, made economical life increasingly international, and brought one autonomous states and regions into a mutually disintegrative intimacy of reaction. The stresses upon our communities are greater than they have ever been, and the binding force is less. The outlook before our race seems therefore to be wider, more uncertain, and more dangerous than has ever appeared before. In the past, in the history of every community, there have been phases of moral and religious confusion. The beliefs and ideas of right conduct that have served hitherto begin, in the presence of new circumstances or new challenges, to lose authority or to fail in meeting current moral problems. An age of relaxation and a sort of experimental wickedness dawns. Scruples vanish. Treachery, cruelty, unrestrained self-indulgence, which have been kept under hatches, emerge conspicuously. Government becomes more adventurous, tyrannous, and unjust, and the moral distinction between ruler and brigand finds a way to the vanishing point. There seems no longer any good faith nor any sweetness of soul in human life except among the sacrificial simple. What will for a better life still manifests itself in the world is for a while quite unable to take hold of the disorder. Italy in the Machiavellian period and Germany after the intricate wars of the Reformation may be cited as typical instances of such wicked phases in social history. Yet it was not that the heart of man changed for the worse in those ages. Not that there was a sudden generation of vipers, but that intellectual confusion had divided and enfeebled the graver spirited minority, which had, under more assured conditions, sustained the faith of most people and the moral disciplines of everyone. The quality of the ingredients of the human mixture remained the same, but the restraining and directive forces had in their interplay come upon a phase of mutual neutralization and collective ineffectiveness. There are many signs that today, over large parts of the world, there is a drift towards such another disintegrative and distressful phase. The brigand, the boss, and the adventurer become portentously successful and immune. People who, in other times, would have been active and confident in their own lives and vigorously cooperative in the control of human affairs are uncertain in their hearts and unhappy in their interventions. 
the old faiths have become unconvincing, unsubstantial, and insincere. And though there are clear intimations of a new faith in the world, it still awaits embodiment in formula and organizations that will bring it into effective reaction upon human affairs as a whole. This present essay is an attempt to assemble these intimations into a form that will be available for the practical direction of the writer's and the reader's life. Chapter 2. Subordination of Self, the Essence of Religion the religions that hitherto have served over wide regions and for considerable periods of time to sustain men in more or less orderly, honest, decent, and progressive societies have been presented to the generality and accepted by the generality in extremely attenuated forms. In their beginnings, they were all intense and uncompromising. Christianity, for example, began with the completest communism, Buddhism with an entire renunciation of earthly desire, Islam with a passionate and forcible dedication of the whole world to Allah. Sooner or later, however, the propagandists came to terms with human weakness and struck a bargain for a cheaper form of common proselyte. But though the creed and practice might need lightning and fitting to customary humanity before they could be universally accepted, there appeared no essential conflict in the process between the intense and the superficial form. The common man assented to everything in the doctrine, and merely asked to have the more difficult and onerous terms deferred or mitigated. His plea for his personal insufficiency was weakness and not dissent. In their completeness, in their esoteric forms, in the life that was professionally religious, religions have always demanded great subordination of self. Therein lay their creative usefulness. There is no such thing as a self-contained religion, a private religious solo. Certain forms of Protestantism and some mystical types come near to making religion a secluded duet between the individual and his divinity but here that may be regarded as a perversion of the religious impulse. Just as the normal sexual complex excites and stirs the individual out of his egotism to serve the ends of the race, so the normal religious process takes the individual out of his egotism for the service of the community. It is not a bargain, a social contract between the individual and the community. It is a subordination of both the existing individual and the existing community in relation to something, a divinity, a divine order, a standard, a righteousness, more important than either. What is called in the phraseology of certain religions conviction of sin and the flight from the city of destruction are familiar instances of this reference of the self-centered individual and the current social life to something far better than either the one or the other. This is the third element in the religious relationship, a hope, a promise, an objective which turns the convert not only from himself but from the world, as it is, towards better things. First comes self-disregard, then service, and then this reconstructive creative urgency. For that minority of minds which I have already spoken of as the salt of the earth, this aspect of religion seems to have been its primary attraction. One has to remember that there is a will for religion scattered throughout mankind. Religion has never pursued its distinctive votaries. They have come to meet it. 
The desire to give oneself to greater ends than the everyday life affords and to give oneself freely is clearly dominant in that minority and traceable in an incalculable proportion of the majority. Chapter 3. Need for a Restatement of Religion Every great religion has explained itself in the form of a history and a cosmogony. It has been felt necessary to say why and to what end. Every religion has had necessarily to adopt the physical conceptions, and usually also to assume many of the moral and social values current at the time of its foundation. It could not transcend the philosophical phrases and attitudes that seemed then to supply the natural frame for a faith, nor draw upon anything beyond the store of scientific knowledge of its time. In these conditions lurked the seeds of an ultimate decay and suppression of every religion. But as the idea of continual change going farther and farther from existing realities and never returning to them is a new one, each fresh development of religion in the world so far has been proclaimed in perfect good faith as the culminating and final truth. The suggestion of the possibility of further restatement is an unsettling suggestion. It seems to undermine conviction and it breaks the ranks of the believers because there are numerous variations in the capacities of men to recognize the same spirit under a changing shape. While some intelligences can recognize the same God under a variety of names and symbols without any severe strain, others cannot even detect the most contrasted gods one from the other, provided they wear the same mask and title. It appears a perfectly natural and reasonable thing to many minds to restate religion in terms of biological and psychological necessity, while to others any variation in the phrasing of the faith seems to be nothing less than atheistical misrepresentations of the most damnable kind. For them God, a God still anthropomorphic enough to have a will and purpose, to display preferences and reciprocate emotions, to be indeed a person, must be retained until the end of time. For others, God can be thought of as a great first cause, as impersonal and inhuman as atomic structure. It is because of the historical and philosophical commitments they have undertaken, and because of concessions made to common human weaknesses in regard to such once apparently minor but now vital moral issues as property, mental activity, and public veracity. Rather than any inadequacy in their adaptation to psychological needs, that the present discredit of recognized religions has come about, they no longer seem even roughly truthful upon issues of fact, and they give no imperatives over large fields of conduct in which perplexity is prevalent. People will say, I could be perfectly happy leading the life of a Catholic devotee if only I could believe... But most of the framework of religious explanation upon which that life is sustained is too old-fashioned and too irrelevant to admit of that thoroughness of belief, which is necessary for the devotion of intelligent people. Great ingenuity has been shown by modern writers and thinkers in the adaptation of venerated religious expressions to new ideas. Bacavi the word God is in most minds so associated with the concept of religion that it is abandoned only with the greatest reluctance. The word remains, though the idea is continually attenuated, is pushed farther and farther from actuality, and his definition becomes increasingly a bundle of negations until at last 
and his role of the absolute, he becomes an entirely negative expression. While we can speak of good, say some, we can speak of God. God is the possibility of goodness, the good side of things. If phrases in which the name of God is used are to be abandoned, they argue religion will be left speechless before many occasions. Certainly, there is something beyond the individual that is and the world that is, on that we have already insisted as a characteristic of all religions, that persuasion is the essence of faith and the key to courage. But whether that is to be considered, even after the most strenuous exercises in personification, as a greater person or a comprehensive person is another matter. Personality is the last vestige of anthropomorphism. The modern urge to a precise veracity is against such concessions to traditional expression. On the other hand, there is in many fine religious minds a desire amounting almost to a necessity for an object of devotion, so individualized as to be capable at least of a receptive consciousness, even if no definite response is conceded. One type of mind can accept a reality in itself, which another must project and dramatize before it can comprehend it and react to it. The human soul is an intricate thing which will not endure elucidation when that passes beyond a certain degree of harshness and roughness. The human spirit has learnt love, devotion, obedience, and humility in relation to other personalities, and with difficulty it takes the final step to a transcendent subordination from which the last shred of personality has been stripped. It matters not immediately material, language has to work by metaphors, and though every metaphor carries its own peculiar risks of confusion, we cannot do without them. Great intellectual tolerance is necessary. Therefore, a cultivated disposition to translate and retranslate from one metaphysical or emotional idiom to another if there is not to be a deplorable wastage of moral force in our world. Three profound differences between the mental dispositions of the present time and those of preceding ages have to be realized if current developments of the religious impulse are to be seen in their correct relationship to the religious life of the past. There has been great advance in the analysis of psychic processes and the courage with which men have probed into the origins of human thought and feeling. Following upon the biological advances that have made us recognize fish and amphibium and the bodily structure of man, have come these parallel developments in which we see elemental fear and lust and self-love molded, modified, and exalted under the stress of social progress into intricate human motives. Our conception of sin and our treatment of sin have been profoundly modified by this analysis. Our former sins are seen as ignorances, inadequacies, and bad habits, and the moral conflict is robbed of three-fourths of its ego-centered, melodramatic quality. We are no longer moved to be less wicked. We are moved to organize our conditioned reflexes and lead a life less fragmentary and silly. Secondly, the conception of individuality has been influenced and relaxed by biological thought so that we do not think so readily of the individual, contra mundum, as our fathers did. We begin to realize we are egotists by misapprehension. Nature cheats the self to serve the purposes of the species by filling it with wants that war against its private interests. 
As our eyes are opened to these things, we see ourselves as beings greater or less than the definitive self. Man's soul is no longer his own. It is, he discovers, part of a greater being which lived before he was born and will survive him. The idea of a survival of the definite individual with all the accidents and idiosyncrasies of his temporal nature upon him dissolves to nothing in this new view of immortality. The third of the main contrasts between modern and former thought, which have rendered the general shapes of established religion old-fashioned and unserviceable, is a reorientation of current ideas about time. The powerful disposition of the human mind to explain everything as the inevitable unfolding of a past event which, so to speak, sweeps the future helplessly before it, has been checked by a mass of subtle criticisms. The conception of progress as a broadening and increasing purpose, a conception which is taking hold of the human imagination more and more firmly, turns religious life towards the future. We think no longer of submission to the irrevocable degrees of absolute dominion, but of participation in an adventure on behalf of a power that gains strength and establishes itself. The history of our world, which has been unfolded to us by science, runs counter to all the histories on which religions have been based. There was no creation in the past. We begin to realize, but eternally there is creation. There was no fall to account for the conflict of good and evil, but a stormy ascent. Life as we know it is a mere beginning. It seems unavoidable that if religion is to develop unifying and directive power in the present confusion of human affairs, it must adapt itself to this forward-looking, individuality-analyzing turn of mind. It must divest itself of its sacred histories, its gross preoccupations, its posthumous prolongation of personal ends. The desire for service, for subordination, for permanent effect for an escape from the distressful pettiness and morality of the individual life, is the undying element in every religious system. The time has come to strip religion right down to that, to strip it for greater tasks than it has ever faced before. The histories and symbols that served our fathers encumber and divide us. Sacraments and rituals harbor disputes and waste our scanty emotions. The explanation of why things are is an unnecessary effort in religion. The essential fact in religion is the desire for religion and not how it came about. If you do not want religion, no persuasions, no convictions about your place in the universe can give it to you. The first sentence in the modern creed must be not, I believe, but I give myself. To what? And how? To these questions we must next address ourselves. Chapter 4. Objective Expression of Modern Religion To give oneself religiously is a continuing operation expressed in a series of acts. It can be nothing else. You cannot dedicate yourself and then go away to live just as you have lived before. It is a poor travesty of religion that does not produce an essential change in the life which embraces it. But in the established and older religions of our race, this change of conduct has involved much self-abasement merely to the god or gods, or much self-mortification merely with a view to the moral perfecting of self. 
Christian devotion, for example, in these early stages, before the hermit life gave place to organized monastic life, did not to any extent direct itself to service except the spiritual service of other human beings. But as Christianity became a definite social organizing force, it took on a great series of healing, comforting, helping, manufacturing, and educational activities. The modern tendency has been and is all in the direction of minimizing what one might call self-centered devotion and self-subjugation, and of expanding and developing external service. The idea of inner perfectibility dwindles with the diminishing importance attached to individuality. We cease to think of mortifying or exalting or perfecting ourselves and seek to lose ourselves in a greater life. We think less and less of conquering self and more and more of escaping from self. If we attempt to perfect ourselves in any respect, it is only as a soldier sharpens and polishes an essential weapon. Our quickened apprehension of continuing change, our broader and fuller vision of the history of life, disabuse our minds of many limitations set to the imaginations of our predecessors. Much that they saw as fixed and determinate, we see as transitory and controllable. They saw life fixed in its species and subjected to irrevocable laws. We see life struggling insecurely, but with a gathering successfulness for freedom and power against restriction and death. We see life coming, at last, to our tragic and hopeful human level. Certain great possibilities, certain mighty problems, we realize, confront mankind today. They frame our existences. The practical aspect, the material form, the embodiment of the modern religious impulse is the direction of the whole life to the solution of these problems and the realization of their possibilities. The modern religious life, like all forms of religious life, must needs have its own subtle and deep interactivities, its meditations, its self-confrontations, its phases of stress and search and appeal, its serene and prayerful moods. But these inward aspects do not come into the scope of this present inquiry, which is concerned entirely with the outward shape, the direction and the organization of modern religious effort with the question of what, given religious devotion, we have to do and how that has to be done. Now as the modern vision of life has grown clear, certain vast possibilities and certain great dangers have become plain. They challenge mankind. They furnish an entirely new frame and setting for the moral life. In the fixed and limited outlook of the past, practical good works took the form mainly of palliative measures against evils that were conceived of as incurable. The religious community nursed the sick, fed the hungry, provided sanctuary for the fugitive, pleaded with the powerful for mercy. It did not dream of preventing sickness, famine, or tyranny. Otherworldliness was its ready refuge from the invincible evil and confusion of the existing scheme of things. It is possible now to imagine an order in human affairs from which these evils have been largely or entirely eliminated. More and more people are coming to realize that such an order is a material possibility. And with the realization that this is a material possibility, we can no longer be content with a field of good deeds and right action restricted to palliative and consolatory activities. Such things are merely first aid 
The religious mind grows bolder than it has ever been before. It pushes through the curtain it once imagined was a barrier. It apprehends its larger obligations. The way in which our activities conduce to the realization of that conceivable better order of human affairs becomes the new criterion of conduct. The realization of this conceivable better order involves certain necessary achievements. It is impossible for any clear-headed person to suppose that the ever more destructive stupidities of war can be eliminated from human affairs until some common political control dominates the earth. And unless certain pressures due to the growth of population, due to the enlarging scope of human operations, or due to the conflicting standards and traditions of life, are disposed of. To avoid the positive evils of war and to attain the new levels of prosperity and power that now come into view, an effective world control not merely of armed force but of the production and main movements of staple commodities and the drift and expansion of population is required. It is absurd to dream of peace and worldwide progress without that much control. These things assured, the abilities and energies of a greatly increased proportion of human beings could be diverted to the happy activities of scientific research and creative work with an ever-increasing release and enlargement of human possibility. Such a forward stride in human life, the first stride in a mighty continuing advance, an advance to which no limit appears, is now materially possible. The opportunity is offered to mankind. But there is no certainty, no material necessity, that it should ever be taken. It will not be taken by mankind inadvertently, it can only be taken through such an organization of will and energy to take it as this world has never seen before. These are the new conditions that unfold themselves before the more alert minds of our generation and which will presently become the general mental background, as the modern interpretations of the history of life of material and mental possibilities establish themselves. Evil political, social, and economic usages and arrangements may seem obdurate and huge, but they are neither permanent nor uncontrollable. They can be controlled, however, only by an effort more powerful and determined than the instincts and inertias that sustain them. Religion, modern and disillusioned, has for its outward task to set itself to the control and direction of political, social, and economic life or admit itself a mere drug for easing discomfort? Can it, or can it not, synthesize the needed effort to lift mankind out of our present disorders, dangers, baseness, frustrations, and futilities, to a phase of relative security, accumulating knowledge, systematic and continuing growth in power, and the widespread deep happiness of hopeful and increasing life? Our answer here is that it can and our subject now is to inquire what are the necessary opening stages in this synthesis of that effort. We write here for those who believe that it can, and who do already grasp the implications of world history and contemporary scientific achievement. Chapter 5. The Frame of the Task Before Mankind. The World Commonweal. Before we can consider the forms and methods of attacking their inevitable task that the serious minority of human beings must adopt, it will be well to draw the main lines and attempt some measure of the magnitude of that task. 
What are the new forms that it sought to impose upon human life, and how are they to be evolved from or imposed upon the current forms? And against what passive and active resistances has this to be done? There can be no pause for replacement in the affairs of life. Day must follow day, and the common activities continue. The new world as a going concern must arise out of the old as a going concern. Now, the most comprehensive concoction of this new world is of one politically, socially, and economically unified. Within that frame fall all the other ideas of our progressive ambition. To this end, a small but increasing body of people in the world set their faces and seek to direct their lives. Still more at present apprehended as a possibility but do not dare to desire it, because of the enormous difficulties that intervene and because they see as yet no intimations of a way through or round these difficulties. The great majority of human beings have still to see the human adventure as one whole. They are obsessed by the air of permanence and finality in established things. They accept current reality as ultimate reality. They take the world as they find it. But here we are writing for the modern-minded, and for them it is impossible to think of the world as secure and satisfactory until there exists a single world common wheel. Preventing war and controlling these moral, biological, and economic forces that would otherwise lead to wars. The method of direction of such a world commonweal is not likely to imitate the methods of existing sovereign states. It will be a new sort of direction with a new psychology. There will be little need for a president or king to lead the marshaled hosts of humanity, for where there is no war, there is no need of any leader to lead hosts anywhere. And in a polyglot world, the parliament of mankind is an inconceivable instrument of government. The fundamental organization of contemporary states is still plainly military, and that is exactly what a world organization cannot be. Flags, uniforms, national anthems, patriotism sedulously cultivated in church and school, the brag, blare and bluster of our competing sovereignties belong to the phase of development we would supersede. The reasonable desire of all of us is that we should have the collective affairs of the world managed by suitably equipped groups of the most interested, intelligent, and devoted people, and their activities should be subjected to a free, open, watchful criticism, restrained from making spasmodic interruptions, but powerful enough to modify or supersede without haste or delay whatever is weakening or unsatisfactory in the general direction. A world movement for the suppression or enlargement or fusion of existing political, economic, and social institutions must necessarily, as it grows, draw closer and closer to questions of practical control. It is likely in its growth to incorporate many active public servants and many industrial and financial leaders and directors. It may also assimilate great numbers of intelligent workers. As its activities spread, it will work out a whole system of special methods of cooperation. It will learn as it grows and by growing the business of general direction and how to develop its critical function so that the movement we contemplate will by its very nature be one aiming not so much to set up a world direction as to become itself a world direction, and the educational and militant forms of its opening phase will, 
as experiences gained and power and responsibility acquired, evoke step-by-step forms of administration and research and correction. The modernization of the religious impulse leads us straight to the effort for the establishment of the world state as a duty, and the close consideration of the necessary organization of that effort will bring the reader to the conclusion that a movement aiming at the establishment of a world directorate, however restricted that movement may be at first in numbers and power, must either contemplate the prospect of itself developing in part or as a whole into a world directorate, and by assimilation as a whole into a modern world community, or admit from the outset the futility, the spare-time amateurishness of its gestures. Chapter 6 Broad Characteristics of the World Commonweal Continuing our examination of the practical task before the modern mind, we may next note the main lines of contemporary aspiration within this comprehensive outline of a world commonweal. Any sort of unification of human affairs will not serve the ends we seek. We aim at a particular sort of unification. A world Caesar is hardly better from the progressive viewpoint than world chaos. The unity we seek must mean the liberation of human thought, experiment, and creative effort. A successful conspiracy merely to seize governments and wield and retain world power would be at best only the empty frame of success. It may be the exact reverse of success. Release from the threat of war and the waste of international economic conflicts is a poor release if it demands, as its price, the loss of all other liberties. It is because we desire a unification of human direction, not simply for the sake of unity, but as a means to certain definite ends, that is necessary at any cost, in delay and loss of effective force and strategic or tactical disadvantage, that the light of free, abundant criticism should play upon that unified direction and upon the movements and organizations leading to the establishment of that unified direction. Man is an imperfect animal and never quite trustworthy in the dark. Neither morally nor intellectually is he safe from lapses. Most of us who are past our first youth know how little we can even trust ourselves and are glad to have our activities checked and guarded by a sense of inspection. It is for this reason that a movement to realize the conceivable better state of the world must deny itself the advantages of secret methods or tactical insincerities. It must leave that to its adversaries. We must declare our end plainly from the outset and risk no misunderstandings of our procedure. The conspiracy of modern religion against the established institutions of the world must be an open conspiracy and cannot remain righteous otherwise. It is lost if it goes underground. Every step to the world unity must be taken in the daylight or the sort of unity that will be won will be found to be scarcely worth the winning. The essential task will have to be recommenced with the mere frame of unity attained. This candid attempt to take possession of the whole world must be made in the name and for the sake of science and creative activity. It is to release science and creative ability, and every stage in the struggle must be watched and criticized lest there be any sacrifice of those ends to the exigencies of conflict. 
The security of creative progress and creative activity implies a competent regulation of the economic life and the collective interest. There must be food, shelter, and leisure for all. The fundamental needs of the animal life must be assured before human life can have free play. Man does not live by bread alone. He eats that he may learn and adventure creatively. But unless he eats, he cannot adventure. His life is primarily economic, as a house is primarily a foundation, and economic justice and efficiency must underlie all other activities. But to judge human society and organize political and social activities entirely on economic grounds is to forget the objectives of life's campaign in a preoccupation with supply. It is true that man, like the animal world in general from which he has arisen, is the creature of a struggle for sustenance, but unlike the animals, man can resort to methods of escape from that competitive pressure upon the means of subsistence, which has been the lot of every other animal species. He can restrain the increase in his numbers, and he seems capable of still quite undefined expansions of his productivity per head of population. He can escape, therefore, from the struggle for subsistence altogether with a surplus of energy, such as no other kind of animal species has ever possessed. Intelligent control of population is a possibility which puts man outside the competitive process that have hitherto ruled the modification of species, and he can be released from these processes in no other way. There is a clear hope that later, directed breeding will come within this scope. But that goes beyond his present range of practical achievement. And we need not discuss it further here. Suffice it for us here that the world community of our desires, the organized world community conducting and ensuring its own progress, requires a deliberate collective control of population as a primary condition. There is no strong instinctive desire for multitudinous offspring as such in the feminine makeup. The reproductive impulse operate indirectly. Nature ensures a pressure of population through passions and instincts that, given sufficient knowledge, intelligence, and freedom on the part of women, can be satisfactorily gratified and tranquilized, if need be, without the production of numerous children. Very slight adjustments in social and economic arrangements will, in a world of clear, available knowledge and straightforward practice in these matters, supply sufficient inducement or discouragement to affect the general birth rate or the birth rate of specific types, as the directive sense of the community may consider desirable. So long as the majority of human beings are begotten involuntarily in lust and ignorance, so long does man remain like any other animal under the molding pressure of competition for subsistence. Social and political processes change entirely in their character, when we recognize the possibility and practicability of this fundamental revolution in human biology. In a world so relieved, the production of staple necessities presents a series of problems altogether less distressful than those of the present scramble for possessions and self-indulgence on the part of the successful, and for work and a bare living on the part of the masses. With the increase of population unrestrained, there was, as the end of the economic process, no practical alternative to a multitudinous equality at the level of bare subsistence, except through such an inequality of economic arrangements as allowed a minority to maintain a higher standard of life by withholding whatever surplus of production it could grasp, 
from consumption and mere proletarian increase. In the past and at present, what is called the capitalist system, that is to say the unsystematic exploitation of production by private owners under the protection of the law, has on the whole, in spite of much haste and conflict, worked beneficially by checking the gravitation to a universal low-grade consumption, which would have been the inevitable outcome of socialism, oblivious of biological processes. With effective restraint upon the increase of population, however, entirely new possibilities open out before mankind. The besetting vice of economic science, orthodox and unorthodox alike, has been the vice of beginning in the air, with current practice and current convictions with questions of wages, prices, values, and possession, with the profounder issues of human association, are really not to be found at all on these levels. The primary issues of human association are biological and psychological, and the essentials of economics are problems in applied physics and chemistry. The first thing we should examine is what we want to do with natural resources, and the next, how to get men to do what has to be done as pleasurably and effectively as possible. Then we should have a standard by which to judge the methods of today. But the academic economists, and still more so Marx and his followers, refuse to deal with these fundamentals and with a stupid air of sound practical wisdom insist on opening up their case with an uncritical acceptance of the common antagonism of employers and employed, and a long rigmarole about profits and wages. Ownership and expropriated labor are only one set of many possible sets of economic method. The economists, however, will attend seriously only to the current set. The rest they ignore and the Marxists, with their uncontrollable disposition to use nicknames in the place of judgments, condemn all others as utopian. A word as final in its dismissal from the minds of the elect as that other pet counter in the communist substitute for thought, bourgeois. If they can persuade themselves that an idea or a statement is utopian or bourgeois, it does not seem to matter in the least to them whether it is right or wrong. It is disposed of. Just as in gentler circles anything is disposed of that can be labeled atheistical, subversive, or disloyal. If a century and a half ago the world had submitted its problems of transport to the economists, they would have put aside with as little wasted breath and ink as possible all talk about railways, motor cars, steamships, and aeroplanes and with a fine sense of extravagance rebuked, set themselves to long neuralgic dissertations, disputations, and treatises upon high roads and the methods of connecting them. Turnpike gates, canals, the influence of lock fees on bargemen, tidal landing places, anchorages, surplus carrying capacity, carriers, caravans, hand barrows, and the pedestrian ariat. There would have been a rapid and easy differentiation in feeling and requirements between the horse-owning minority and the walking majority. The wrongs of the latter would have tortured the mind of every philosopher who could not ride and been minimized by every philosopher who could. And there would have been a broad rift between the narrow footpath school, the no-footpath school, and the school which would look forward to a time when every horse would have had to been led along one universal footpath under the dictatorship of the pedestrian ariat, 
all with the profoundest gravity and dignity. These things, footpaths and roads and canals with their traffic, were real and utopian projects for getting along at 30 or 40 miles an hour or more uphill and against wind and tide, let alone the still more incredible suggestion of air transport, would have been smiled and sneered out of court. Life went about on its legs, with a certain assistance from wheels, or floated, rode, and was blown about on water, so it had been, and so it would always be. But as soon as this time-honored preoccupation with the allotment of the shares of originators, organizers, workers, owners of material, credit dealers, and tax collectors in the total product, ceases to be dealt with as the primary question in economics. As soon as we liberate our minds from a preoccupation which from the outset necessarily makes that science a squabble rather than a science, and begin our attack upon the subject with a survey of the machinery and other productive material required in order that the staple needs of mankind should be satisfied, if we go on from that, to consider the way in which all this material and machinery can be worked and the product distributed with the least labor and the greatest possible satisfaction, we shift our treatment of economic questions towards standards by which all current methods of exploitation, employment, and finance can be judged rather than wrangled over. We can dismiss the question of the claims of this sort of participant or that for later and subordinate consideration, and view each variety of human assistance in the general effort entirely from the standpoint of what makes that assistant least onerous and most effective. The germs of such really scientific economics exist already in the study of industrial organization and industrial psychology. As the science of industrial psychology in particular develops, we shall find all this discussion of ownership, profit, wages, finance, and accumulation, which has been treated hitherto as the primary issues of economics, falling into place under the larger inquiry of what conventions in these matters, what system of money and what conceptions of property yield the greatest stimulus and the least friction in that worldwide system of cooperation which must constitute the general economic basis to the activities of a unified mankind. Manifestly, the supreme direction of the complex of human economic activities in such a world must center upon a Bureau of Information and Advice, which will take account of all the resources of the planet, estimate current needs, apportion productive activities and control distribution topographical and geological surveys of modern civilized communities, their government maps, their periodic issue of agricultural and industrial statistics, are the first crude and incoordinated beginnings of such an economic world intelligence. In the propaganda work of David Lubin, a pioneer whom mankind must not forget, and in his International Institute of Agriculture in Rome, there were the beginnings of an impartial review month by month and year by year of world production, world needs, and world transport. Such a great central organization of economic science would necessarily produce direction. It would indicate what had best be done here, there, and everywhere, solve general tangles, examine, approve, and initiate fresh methods and arrange the transitional process from old to new. 
It would not be an organization of will, imposing its will upon a reluctant or recalcitrant race. It would be a direction, just as a map is a direction. A map imposes no will on anyone, breaks no one into its policy, and yet we obey our maps. The will to have the map, full, accurate, and up-to-date, and the determination to have its indications respected, would have to pervade the whole community. To nourish and sustain that will must be the task of not any one particular social or economic division of the community, but of the whole body of religious-minded people in that community. The organization and preservation of that power of will is the primary undertaking, therefore, of a world revolution aiming at universal peace, welfare, and happy activity. The older and still prevalent conception of government is bullying, is the breaking in and subjugation of the subject to the god or king or lords of the community, will-bending, the overcoming of the recalcitrant junior and inferior, was an essential process in the establishment of primitive societies, and its tradition still rules our education and law. No doubt there must be a necessary accommodation of the normal human will to every form of society. No man is immaculately virtuous, but compulsion and restraint are the friction of the social machine, and other things being equal, the less compulsive social arrangements are, the more willingly, naturally, and easily they are accepted, the less wasteful of moral effort, and the happier that community will be. The ideal state, other things being equal, is the state with the fewest possible number of will fights and will suppressions. This must be a primary consideration in determining the economic, biological, and mental organization of the world community at which we aim. We have advanced the opinion that the control of population pressure is practicable without any violent conflict with human nature, that given a proper atmosphere of knowledge and intention, there need be far less suppression of will in relation to production than prevails today. In the same way, it is possible that the general economic life of mankind may be made universally satisfactory, that there may be an abundance out of all comparison greater than the existing supply of things necessary for human well-being, freedom, and activity, with not merely not more, but infinitely less subjugation and enslavement than now occurs. Man is still but half-born out of the blind struggle for existence, and his nature still partakes of the infinite wastefulness of his mother nature. He has still to learn how to price the commodities he covets in terms of human life. He is indeed only beginning to realize that as something to be learned. He wastes will and human possibility extravagantly in his current economic methods. We know nowadays that the 19th century expended a great wealth of intelligence upon a barren controversy between individualism and socialism. They were treated as mutually exclusive alternatives instead of being questions of degree. Human society has been, is, and always must be an intricate system of adjustments between unconditional liberty and the disciplines and subordinations of cooperative enterprise. Affairs do not move simply from a more individualist to a more socialist state or vice versa. There may be a release of individual initiative going on here and standardization or restraint increasing there. 
personal property never can be socially guaranteed and yet unlimited in action and extent as the extremer individualist desired, nor can it be abolished as the extremer socialist proposed. Property is not robbery, as Proudhon asserted. It is the protection of things against promiscuous and mainly wasteful use. In some cases, it may restrict or forbid a use of things that would be generally advantageous, and it may be and is frequently unfair in its assignment of initiative, but the remedy for that is not an abolition, but a revision of property. In the concrete, it is a form necessary for liberty of action upon material, while abstracted as money, that liquidated, generalized form of property, it is a ticket for individual liberty of movement and individual choice of reward. The economic history of mankind is a history of the operation of the idea of property. It relates the conflict of the unlimited acquisitiveness of egotistic individuals against the resentment of the disinherited and unsuccessful and the far less effective consciousness of a general welfare. Money grew out of a system of abstracting conventions and has been subjected to a great variety of restrictions, monopolizations, and regulations. It has never been an altogether logical device, and it has permitted the most extensive and complex developments of credit, debt, and dispossession. All these developments have brought with them characteristic forms of misuse and corruption. The story is intricate, and the tangle of relationships of dependence, of pressure, of interception, of misdirected services, crippling embarrassments, and crushing obligations in which we live today, admits of no such simple and general solutions as many exponents of socialism, for example, seem to consider possible. But the thought and investigations of the past century or so have made it clear that a classification of property according to the nature of the rights exercisable and according to the range of ownership involved must be the basis of any system of social justice in the future. Certain things, the ocean, the air, rare wild animals, must be the collective property of all mankind and cannot be altogether safe until they are so regarded and until some concrete body exists to exercise these proprietary rights. Whatever collective control exists must protect these universal properties. The sea from derelicts, the strange shy things of the wild from extermination by the hunter and the foolish collector. The extinction of many beautiful creatures is one of the penalties our world is paying for its sluggishness in developing a collective common rule. And there are many staple things and general needs that now also demand a unified control in the common interest. The raw material of the earth should be for all, not to be monopolized by any acquisitive individual or acquisitive sovereign state, and not to be withheld from exploitation for the general benefit by any chance claims to territorial priority of this or that backward or bargaining person or tribe. In the past, most of these universal concerns have had to be left to the competitive enterprise of profit-seeking individuals, because there was, as of yet, no collectivities organized to the pitch of ability needed to develop and control these concerns. But surely nobody in his senses believes that the supply and distribution of staple commodities about the earth by irresponsible persons and companies working entirely for monetary gain 
is the best possible method from the point of view of the race as a whole. The land of the earth, all utilizable natural products have fallen very largely under the rules and usages of personal property, because that was the only recognized and practicable form of administrative proprietorship in the past. The development both of extensive proprietary companies and of government departments with economic functions has been a matter of the last few centuries. The development, that is to say, of communal, more or less impersonal ownership, and it is only through these developments that the idea of organized collectivity of proprietorship has become credible. Even in quite modern state enterprises, there is a tendency to recall the role of the vigilant, jealous and primitive personal proprietor in the fiction of ownership by His Majesty the King. In Great Britain, for example, George Rex is still dimly supposed to hover over the postmaster general of his post office, approve, disapprove, and call him to account. But the postal union of the world, which steers a registered letter from Chile to Norway or from Ireland to Peking, is almost completely divorced from the convention of an individual owner. It works. It is criticized without awe or malice except for the stealing and steaming of letters by the political police of various countries, it works fairly well. And the only force behind it to keep it working well is the conscious common sense of mankind. But when we have stipulated for the replacement of individual private ownership by more highly organized forms of collective ownership, subject to free criticism and responsible to the whole republic of mankind, in the general control of sea and land, in the getting, preparation, and distribution of staple products, and in transport, we have really named all the possible generalizations of concrete ownership that the most socialistic of contemporaries will be disposed to demand. And if we add to that the necessary maintenance of a money system by a central world authority upon a basis that will make money keep faith with the worker who earns it, and represent from first to last for him the value and staple commodities he was given to understand it was to have. And if we conceive credit adequately controlled in the general interest by a socialized world banking organization, we shall have defined the entire realm from which individual property and unrestricted individual enterprise have been excluded. Beyond that, the science of social psychology will probably assure us that the best work will be done for the world by individuals free to exploit their abilities as they wish. If the individual landowner or mineral owner disappears altogether from the world, he will probably be replaced over large areas by tenants with considerable security of tenure, by householders and by licenses under collective proprietors. It will be the practice, the recognized best course, to allow the cultivator to profit as fully as possible by his own individual productivity, and to leave the householder to fashion his house and garden after his own desire. Such in the very broadest terms is the character of the world commonweal towards which the modern imagination is moving, so far as its direction and economic life are concerned. The organization of collective bodies capable of exercising these wider proprietorships, which cannot be properly used in the common interests by uncorrelated individual owners, is the positive practical problem before the intelligent portion of mankind today. 
The nature of such collective bodies is still a series of open questions, even upon such points as whether they will be elected bodies or groups deriving their authority from other sanctions. Their scope and methods of operation, their relations to one another and to the Central Bureau of Intelligence, remain also to be defined. But before we conclude this essay, we may be able to find precisions for at least the beginning of such definition. 19th century socialism in its various forms, including the indurated formula of communism, has been a series of projects for the establishment of such collective controls, for the most part very sketchy projects from which the necessary factor of sound psychological analysis was almost completely wanting. Primarily, movements of protest and revolt against the blazing injustices arising out of the selfishly individualistic exploitation of the new and more productive technical and financial methods of the 18th and 19th centuries. They have been apt to go beyond the limits of reasonable socialization in their demands and to minimize absurdly the difficulties and dangers of collective control. Indignation and impatience were their ruling moods, and if they constructed little, they exposed much. We are better able to measure the magnitude of the task before us because of the clearances and lessons achieved by these pioneer movements. Chapter 7 No Stable Utopia is Contemplated this unified world towards which the efforts of the religious minority would direct human activities cannot be pictured for the reader as any static and stereotyped spectacle of happiness. Indeed, one may doubt if such a thing as happiness is possible without steadily changing conditions involving continually enlarging and exhilarating opportunities. Mankind, released from the pressure of population, the waste of warfare and the private monopolization of the sources of wealth will face the universe with a great and increasing surplus of will and energy. Change and novelty will be the order of life. Each day will differ from its predecessor in its greater amplitude of interest. Life, which was once routine, endurance and mischance, will become adventure and discovery. It will no longer be the old, old story. We have still barely emerged from among the animals in their struggle for existence. We live only in the early dawn of human self-consciousness and in the first awakening of the spirit of mastery. We believe that the persistent exploration of our outward and inward worlds by scientific and artistic endeavor will lead to developments of power and activity upon which at present we can set no limits nor give any certain form. Our antagonists are confusion of mind, want of courage, want of curiosity, and want of imagination, indolence, and spendthrift egotism. These are the enemies against which the open conspiracy arrays itself. These are the jailers of human freedom and achievement. Chapter 8. The Open Conspiracy Must Be Heterogeneous this open and declared intention of establishing a world order out of the present patchwork of particularist governments, of effacing the militarist conceptions that have thereto given governments their typical form, and of removing credit and the broad fundamental processes of economic life out of reach of private profit-seeking and individual monopolization, 
which is the substance of this open conspiracy to which the modern religious mind must necessarily address its practical activities, cannot fail to arouse enormous opposition. It is not a creative effort in a clear field. It is a creative effort that can hardly stir without attacking established things. It is the repudiation of drift, of leaving things alone. It criticizes everything in human life from top to bottom and finds everything not good enough. It strikes at the universal human desire to feel that things are all right. One might conclude, and it would be a hasty, unsound conclusion, that the only people to whom we could look for sympathy and any passionate energy in forwarding the revolutionary change would be the unhappy, the discontented, the dispossessed, and the defeated in life's struggle. This idea lies at the root of the class war dogmas of the Marxists, and it rests on an entirely crude conception of human nature. The successful minority is supposed to have no effective motive but a desire to retain and intensify its advantages. A quite imaginary solidarity to that end is attributed to it, a preposterous base class activity. On the other hand, the unsuccessful mass, proletariat, is supposed to be capable of a clear apprehension of its disadvantages, and the more it is impoverished and embittered, the nearer draws its uprising, its constructive dictatorship, and the millennium. No doubt a considerable amount of truth is to be found distorted in this theory of the communist revolution. Human beings, like other animals, are disposed to remain where their circumstances are tolerable and to want change when they are uncomfortable, and so a great proportion of the people who are well-off want little or no change in present conditions, particularly those who are too dull to be bored by an unprogressive life. And a great proportion of those who actually feel the inconveniences of straitened means and population pressure do. But much vaster masses of the rank and file of humanity are accustomed to inferiority and dispossession. They do not feel these things to the extent even of desiring change, or given so much apprehension, they still fear change more than they dislike their disadvantages. Moreover, those who are sufficiently distressed to realize that something ought to be done about it are much more disposed to childish and threatening demands upon heaven and the government for redress and vindictive and punitive action against the envied fortunate with whom they happen to be in immediate contact, than to any reaction towards such complex, tentative, disciplined, constructive work as alone can better the lot of mankind. In practice, Marxism is found to work out in a ready resort to malignantly, destructive activities, and to be so uncreative as to be practically impotent in the face of material difficulties. In Russia, where, in about the urban centers at least, Marxism has been put to the test, the doctrine of the workers' republic remains as a unifying Kant, a test of orthodoxy, of as little practical significance there as the communism of Jesus and the communion with Christ in Christendom. While beneath this creed of small oligarchy, which has attained power by its profession, does its obstinate best much hampered by the suspicion and hostility of the Western financiers and politicians, to carry on a series of interesting and varying successful experiments in the socialization of economic life. 
Each year shows more and more clearly that Marxism and communism are divagations from the path of human progress, and that the line of advance must follow a course more intricate and less flattering to the common impulse of our nature. The one main strand of truth in the theory of social development woven by Marx and Engels is that successful, comfortable people are disposed to dislike, obstruct, and even resist actively any substantial changes in the current patchwork of arrangements, however great the ultimate dangers of that patchwork may be, or the privations and sufferings of other people involved in it. The one main strand of error in that theory is the facile assumption that the people at a disadvantage will be stirred to anything more than chaotic and destructive expressions of resentment. The one main strand of error in that theory is the facile assumption that the people at a disadvantage will be stirred to anything more than chaotic and destructive expressions of resentment. If now we reject the error and accept the truth, we lose the delusive comfort of belief in that magic giant, the proletariat, who will dictate, arrange, restore, and create, but we clear the way for the recognition of an elite of intelligent religious-minded people scattered through the whole community, and for a study of the method of making this creative element effective in human affairs against the massive oppositions of selfishness and unimaginative self-protective conservatism. Now certain classes of people, such as thugs and burglars, seem to be harmful to society without a redeeming point about them, and others, such as racecourse bookmakers, seem to provide the minimum of distraction and entertainment with a maximum of mischief. Willful idlers are a mere burden on the community. Other social classes, again, professional soldiers, for example, have a certain traditional honorableness which disguises the essentially parasitic relationship of their services to the developing modern community. Armies and armaments are cancers produced by the malignant development of the patriotic virus under modern conditions of exaggeration and mass suggestion. But since there are armies prepared to act coercively in the world today, it is necessary that the open conspiracy should contain within itself the competence to resist military coercion and combat and destroy armies that stand in the way of its emergence. Possibly the first two types here instanced may be condemned as classes and excluded as classes from any participation in the organized effort to recast the world. But quite obviously the soldier cannot. The world commonweal will need its own scientific methods of prevention so long as there are people running about the planet with flags and uniforms and weapons, offering violence to their fellow men and interfering with the free movements of commodities in the name of national sovereignty. And when we come to the general functioning classes, landowners, industrial organizers, bankers, and so forth, who control the present system such as it is, it should be still plainer that it is very largely from the ranks of these classes and from their stores of experience and traditions of method that the directive forces of the new order must emerge. The open conspiracy can have nothing to do with the heresy that the path of human progress lies through an extensive class war. Let us consider how it stands to such a complex of activities, usages, accumulations, advantages, as constitutes the banking world. There are no doubt many bankers and many practices in banking which make for personal or group advantage to the general detriment. 
They forestall, monopolize, constrain, and extort, and so increase their riches. And another large part of that banking world follows routine and established usage. It is carrying on and keeping things going, and it is neither inimical nor conducive to the development of a progressive world organization of finance. But there remains a residuum of original and intelligent people in banking, or associated with banking, or mentally interested in banking, who do realize that banking plays a very important and interesting part in the world's affairs, who are curious about their own intricate function and disposed towards a scientific investigation of its origins, conditions, and future possibilities. Such types move naturally towards the open conspiracy. Their inquiries carry them inevitably outside the banker's habitual field to an examination of the nature, drift, and destiny of the entire human economic process. Now, the theme of the preceding paragraph might be repeated with variations through a score of paragraphs in which appropriate modifications would adapt it to the industrial organizer, the merchant and organizer of transport, the advertiser, the retail distributor, the agriculturalist the engineer, the builder, the economic chemist, and a number of other types functional to the contemporary community. In all, we should distinguish a base and harmful section, a mediocre section following established usage and an active progressive section to whom we turn naturally for developments leading towards the progressive world commonweal of our desires. And our analysis might penetrate further than separation into types of individuals. In nearly every individual instance, we should find a mixed composition, a human being of fluctuating moods and confused purposes, sometimes base, sometimes drifting with the tide, and sometimes alert and intellectually and morally quickened. The open conspiracy must be content to take a fraction of a man as it appeals to fractions of many classes if it cannot get him altogether. This idea of drawing together a proportion of all or nearly all the functional classes in contemporary communities in order to weave the beginnings of a world community out of their selection is a fairly obvious one, and yet it has still to win practical recognition. Man is morbidly gregarious and partisan creature. He is deep in his immediate struggles. The industrialist is best equipped to criticize his fellow industrialist, but he finds the root of all evil in the banker. The wages worker shifts the blame for all social wrongs on the employing class. There is an element of exasperation in most economic and social reactions, and there is hardly a reforming or revolutionary movement in history, which is not essentially an indiscriminate attack of one functioning class or type upon another. On the assumption that the attacked class is entirely to blame for the clash, and that the attacking class is self-sufficient in the commonweal, and can dispense with its annoying collaborator. A considerable element of justice enters into most such recriminations. But the open conspiracy cannot avail itself of these class animosities for its driving force, it can have, therefore, no uniform method of approach. For each class, it has a conception of modification and development, and each class it approaches, therefore, at a distinctive angle. Some classes, no doubt, it would supersede altogether. Others, the scientific investigator, for example, 
it must regard as almost wholly good and seek only to expand and empower. But it can no more adopt the prejudices and extravagances of any particular class as its basis than it can adopt the claims of any existing state or empire. When it is clearly understood that the binding links of the open conspiracy we have in mind are certain broad general ideas, and that, except perhaps in the case of scientific workers, we have no current set of attitudes of mind and habits of activity which we can turn over directly and unmodified to the service of the conspiracy. We are in a position to realize that the movement we contemplate must from the outset be diversified in its traditions and elements and various in its methods. It must fight upon several fronts and with many sorts of equipment. It will have a common spirit, but it is quite conceivable that between many of its contributory factors, there may be very wide gaps in understanding and sympathy. Thank you for listening to this sample. To continue listening to this book and for access to all of our other full audiobooks, please subscribe for $7.77 per month. Go to adultbrain.ca or follow the link in the show notes. This will be a completely separate podcast with a new RSS feed and will have all the titles from this feed as well. Thank you for your help and support in bringing rare and forgotten books to audio for the world.